Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. I'm excited because today we had a chance to talk to Derek Ahonen. And, you know, Derek is not only one of my favorite writers, but he is internationally acclaimed and known all around the world for his really gritty, volatile, and darkly humorous works. And that includes plays like The Qualification of Douglas Evans, The Cheaters Club, and my absolute personal favorite play, The Pipe Pipers of Lower East Side. Derek was the co-founder of The Amoralist, one of the most trailblazing theater companies in New York, and he became the voice of this company, writing a majority of their plays. Their intention was to produce really provocative and raw theater with absolutely no moral judgment. And their goal was to express the American condition in a totally honest way. Which they did very successfully. I mean, they packed the houses with audiences that they didn't expect. And Derek likes the underdog, and that continues to be a theme in his work. It's even true in filmmaking, which is sort of a new venture for Derek. I had a chance to see his first film, The Transcendence, which was based on his play, and it is really fascinating. And this was a fascinating conversation. We explore Derek's early acting days in New York, why he decided to write plays for himself, and what happened when he became famous. And not to mention uh, his love for revenge. Oh, yeah, that is true, and we will explore it. But before we begin... We want to say thanks for listening. We have a new podcast here, so please make sure to subscribe. We have a lot of great guests coming up. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at ArtLawsPod for more. All right, let's get to it. Derek Ahonen. Hey, how are you? Can you hear me? Good, thank you. Where are you these days? Uh, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, but uh, I'm in Chicago at the current moment. Uh, my dad's sick, and uh, the only child thing has activated itself. How's your mom doing? Great, great. I mean, you know, it's kind of weird because it's like uh, you can't have like two people that are taking care of the same person. She's kind of taking care of him, and I'm like taking care of her emotional health. You know, I've had to change my humor from like slapstick to gallows humor. I've had to <laughs> adopt like a, a, a Wednesday Adams sense of morbid gallows humor that is kind of working well for the current <laughs> situation. So, what, maybe a new comedy will come out of it. That's true. That's, well, that's uh, that's sort of what we were we were wondering about. I think. Yeah, and also with everything going on with theater, given the pandemic, where do you see yourself? Are you writing right now? Just because of everything that's happened in 2020, I was done writing plays for the most part uh, about a couple of years ago. I felt like I'd kind of gone out and done everything that I'd wanted to do. But I was actually thinking recently that I'd like to revisit some of those characters in the Pied Piper's Lower East Side 15 years later with them in their 40s now, just to see, you know, kind of like where they've gone and what their lives are. I mean, did they become a bunch of Jerry Rubens? You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, like Jerry Rubin was like, you know, with you know, out, in the 60s, he was like standing with the rifles, you know, in D.C. And then and by the 80s, he was working on Wall Street, like an incredibly successful bro. I don't know. He wasn't even a bro. I don't even know what exactly what he did. Uh, but uh, a high level exec. And I was just like, I was thinking about that recently, like uh, just seeing a new uh, generation of young revolutionaries and it just got me thinking about like 
kind of like what my generation, which is what those characters in Pied Pipers were, uh, what they would kind of look like, you know, in their early to mid forties, you know, but that was, that's mainly just for fun at this point. You know, I haven't really formulated. It's just pondering in the back of my mind. It's funny because we can, we can go into the Pied Pipers, but I was thinking a lot about those characters and if, if they could, they were so specific to their time and place. Could they even exist today? Could they exist in Manhattan like they did? I mean, it's absolutely. I mean, at the end of the actual play, I mean, you got two of them moving to Coney Island to sleep on a couch. You got two of them moving to Iowa to uh, live in a fraternity. Uh, you got one guy who's paralyzed. He's going to go to Mexico and join a revolution. And the other guy is, uh, you know, he probably got all this upward transfer of wealth and became even richer over the past 15 years, the, you know, the landlord. So, I, you know, it would be interesting to see just where they are. Uh, it would be fun for me. Did you start so, writing in Chicago or was it New York? No, when, when it was in New York. Okay. And you, and so tell us about that. I mean, you started writing because you were, you were trying to be a performer and you were finding what, that there weren't roles that spoke to you or you were finding that there was a sort of a gap in, in what you wanted to see on stage. How did that happen? I mean, it's simple. I mean, it's kind of like an old trope that like everybody that started as an actor that becomes a writer is just like, well, roles weren't really speaking to me. So I had to create it for myself. That combined with the fact that I'd been doodling on napkins all throughout acting school, lines of dialogue, just funny jokes. I didn't know if I was going to use it. I don't know if I was going to be a stand-up comedian or I don't I didn't, I had no idea, but I'd have funny jokes that I'd write when none of my friends are around and I wouldn't want to forget it. Maybe I'd just like store it in the memory bank and use it at a party or something like that. But then it just turned out that I had enough of them to actually put together like my first play. That was in uh, 2002. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, that's before I started my theater company, The Immoralists. It was just a, an experiment, this play. I found a couple of friends that had a little theater company. Uh, they did plays in a, like a 20-seat black box. And I went to them with it and I go, please, will you please produce this for $2,000? I don't know how much. Something like that, two or $3,000 for a couple of performances in the basement of a bookshop. And I wrote it. And at that moment, uh, after putting all these, all this dialogue that was on napkins together and trying to figure out uh, structure uh, to kind of format it, uh, I did it. And then I was a writer. And then it took me another four years to actually learn how to write. <laughs> what, was, what was the first place? It was called Venus Sensation and the Pope. Uh, it was it was crazy. I mean, so we do this play in the summer of 2003 at the drama, the old drum shop uh, over on 40th Street in Manhattan. And uh, no one comes and sees it. But somebody, one of the people that came and saw it was uh, a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend who lived in Austin, Texas. So I had to be in New York at that time. And he wanted to then produce it in Austin, Texas. The following year and i was down i was just like yeah i've never been to texas this is this is cool let's do it except i couldn't bring any of the cast with me because i think they'd all moved out of town after the show anyway the people that were in my original cast moved back to wherever the hell they were from so i have to assemble a new crew and you know i was 
it was, it was a crazy time. I cast, I cast a homeless person to play one of the leads, but he used to act in the seventies and is a Vietnam vet. And I felt really uh, close to this guy that was selling me roses at a bar one night. I mean, I was probably drunk too, but once I come up with an idea, I stick to it no matter what. And I was just like, I'm going to use you. I'm going to take you to Austin. So I took a homeless person down to Austin to do the same play uh, for four performances in Austin. It was the best time of his life. I hope to hell he's still alive. He was terrific in it. He was raw. He couldn't remember any of his lines, but some of the shit that he'd make up were even better than what I was writing. Uh, so this was and, the first amoralist play? No, this had nothing to do with the amoralist. Nothing this to do just, Okay. No, this is, so like I said, then it takes four more years and I start uh, learning how to write. I start reading books. I start learning about dramatic structure. Who were you you reading at that time? Who was I reading? Like what playwrights was I reading? Yeah. I don't know if I was, I mean, you read the playwrights when you're in acting school. I was in New York, so I was just seeing plays. I mean, so that's, I mean, I read, I can't remember which books I actually read about writing plays uh, because you were just, I was, it was more about just learning how a three act structure works. Okay. But what was, I, I guess my question too was what was it like? You, I think back for instance, like in the nineties and I was like too young for this, but in the nineties, there was the Tracy Letts era, you know, of the mm-hmm. player of the downtown scene. And all of a sudden, like this guy came along and changed, changed everything. I think what I'm trying to get is I think that that's sort of what the immoralists did as well, you know, in the early 2000s as well. So where did you bridge that gap between sort of the Tracy Letts, that era where there was so much going on off Broadway, it was so exciting. Then there felt like there was sort of like a death of off Broadway. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it came back and it, and it came back in a big way. Were you inspired? Did you sort of see a lull there? Did you see an opportunity to come in and change the direction? What, what was your thoughts at the time when you were seeing these plays? I mean, first of all, the, my thoughts were, I want to make a, another play. Uh, and, you know, I just love theater and I love being in that room. Uh, but I don't, I don't, I, there was, listen, there was a lot of, sh- there was a lot of shit that was going on that just, it, it the mid aughts, before we started in between I finished school in 2002 and we started the immoralists at the end of 2006. So somewhere around there, there was a bunch of shit that was coming out that was literally upper middle class problems where there was not a lot of action on the stage. There wasn't a lot of danger. There weren't people that were screaming. It wasn't okay. let, Let me use this. I remember thinking this at the time it was, and I'm not a fan of either of these groups, so this is not to compare myself, but I remember thinking, man, I bet like all those punk rock guys in the late seventies, they really had to have hate, hated like Emerson Lake and Palmer, like all that stuff in the late seventies. That was like, there were like seven different synthesizers and they were like making all these orchestral compositions that in rock songs. And it was just, it didn't sound good. It wasn't fun. It wasn't an environment. And then you got these guys that didn't really know shit and they come around and they play three chords and just, you know, kill all these tiny little clubs and create a whole scene. So, all right. So to speak to it, when I wanted to start a theater company, I did want to start kind of a scene along with, uh, create art that would create plays that I wanted to see. Uh, so I, it was, it was combined with, listen, I didn't want to go have fucking tea uh, after I get done seeing a play about an upper middle class couple's divorce or the, you know, or the loss of a parent in right. a very direct 
you know, so, I didn't want to see that. I don't want to be part of that. I want to create chaos on stage. Hopefully it has some ideas. Hopefully it has sus- uh, substance. Hopefully it's funny, sexual. And then the the entire audience and all the actors, everybody else goes to the bar and then we talk. The whole scene is what I wanted. Uh, so how did you find how did you find the other two guys to start this? Were they were they acting with you? How, how did you know they were like minded and wanted to go in on this with you? Uh, yes, I went to school with Matt and James, so I'd known them since 99 when we all started uh, at school and when we all moved to New York. And then. Listen, I mean, double back to what I was saying, and this is not to say anything about their talent uh but they were the other they were like the last two left from school <laughs> that, that like the last everyone else had moved back to where the hell they're from so we were hanging out by default and i think obviously there's a commonality there by people that were still sticking around uh and we liked a lot of the same type of theater in school and uh, what was some of that? I mean, did you, did you guys were you familiar with say Willem Dafoe's The Worcester Group and those kind of because those were kind of you know in their time a little bit avant garde and trying to create a scene. Um, yeah, curious yeah. of your Good. theater inspirations. Uh, Rattlestick was Rattlestick Playwrights Theater was an inspiration. Labyrinth was an inspiration. I had loved uh, what Stephen Adley Gurgis was doing. There were those were the ones that were the inspirations around like oh four oh five. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't think that there was those two. Yeah, I mean the Worcester Group was before my time. They were around, but like the heyday that you're talking about, I, that was not something that I had got a chance to experience. Uh, so what, in, were, you know. what was your mission when you started this company with these guys? What was your intention? What was your mission? The mission was to create characters uh, that were amoral. The characters that, all right. There's a lot of, there's, there's obviously a lot of hangups uh, psychologically that existed uh, that also led to the destruction of the company. But I'll speak to myself. There are always a lot of psychological hangups that, <clears throat> all right, so I got these qualities that I don't like about me. These qualities, let's call them negative, all right? So now in this, what I'm going to describe to you is self-analyzation that I'm doing here. I don't like this, I don't like this, or I, I, I want to do this, you know, like I want to date the married women. I want to do, I want to take a woman away from her husband. Or I want to, basically the inspiration to write is, there's a bunch of things that I'm just too cowardly to do in real life and I channel it into the thing and I don't want to look at myself as a bad person. So I create these horrible people that are lovable (laughs) and I can justify it all. (laughs) And there you have gray characters in that you have gray characters that are three dimensional. I try and be a good citizen, but my characters don't have to be. So that's what I wanted to see. And that's what I tried to start. And then, what uh, was the yeah. initial reception? That sounds like a lot of fun, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. It was until it wasn't. And it wasn't real quick. <laughs> it like, well, turned bad real it, quick. What made it stop being fun? Um, ego, as anything. I mean, the problem is, is that I want to start writing 
if I started a theater company with two dudes, I want to be the only writer, even though I knew we needed to bring in other writers when it started getting more successful. And we got to work with some, uh, some of my heroes. Like I was a big fan. Are you asking who, who influenced you? I was a big fan of Adam Rapp and, uh, to get a chance to then invite him to the show and meet him and hang out with him and then ask him if he wanted to do a show with us. Uh, and he agreed to do it. That was something that was, that was, that's, that was a really cool experience. Uh, but I wanted my show, my one show every single year, no matter what. I mean, that I was writing three shows a year when we were producing them all on the fly for the first three years and it just became too much. So I was breaking down mm-hmm. and then I was just like, I can only do one a year. And the one that I wanted to do, I, I certainly wanted it to be the one that everyone focused on when they thought of the immoralist. Cause I always just figured it was my style. You know, mm-hmm. everybody's, you know, you have companies that are dedicated to uh, producing work, uh, for certain audiences, you have, you have certain mission statements that obviously uh, we could talk for years about what the hell people are trying to figure out right now uh, as to what to produce. Uh, but our style was my writing. And uh, I think the other two guys might've envied it a little bit, but they were able to deal with it when they were the leads in the shows. Okay. Cause they were getting really good parts and everybody's ego was being satisfied. And no matter what anybody wrote, and they always wrote way more about me than the other guys. That's what I was going to say. You became because the I'm face. the writer. That's, well, you became right? not only that. I mean, you, I think you put yourself. You directed a lot of the plays. You put yourself in a lot of the plays, and then you know the New York Times. All these people, everybody associated you. I associated you with the Immoralists. I really didn't. I, you know, I think that must not have sat well with the other guys. I don't know. Kind of sounds true? like a breakdown of a band or something. Yeah, I mean it kind of is. I mean, like we did the the we got that the coveted two page New York Times spread like real quick, like I think two years after we started, and like there's like some of my heroes didn't get that that spread, you know. And we got it on like Sunday. We get the Sunday spread basically. So when they do this interview, we we know what it is. Our press agent at that time, our publicist was just like this, you know. This is huge. You know, the other guys didn't even read the New York Times. Like, I, I, I certainly knew it was huge. And then uh, Jason Zinneman, who did the article, uh, he calls us all up, says he wants to do it. And he wants to hang out with me first for like three hours and then bring the other two guys in for an hour. Immediately right there, you can call that the divide. That's when things... We stood together for another four years. Uh, just struggling and chugging along and putting our personal differences aside. But that's where things started to happen. That's where power moves on the inside started happening. That's where suggestions to go uh, for, from an LLC to a non-for-profit started happening. And there did were a know, lot of things done behind it. Could you feel that, that having that private meeting with that New York Times writer, did it feel wrong? I felt, no. I mean, I was, I was thrilled. But after, shortly afterwards... I felt uh, I felt that it I, I, it didn't take long for me to realize that something is going different right now. Uh, that's within that season, two thousand and ten. We started. That's when we brought in our first outside writer, and Adam Rapp. And then we started having conversations about every year bringing in another writer. But all these writers, where I wanted to bring in writers. Adams was an exception, but where I wanted to bring in like 
unknown writers and up and comers. And I knew plenty of them. Uh, and they would have really loved that opportunity uh, where James and Matt were much more interested in were bringing in famous writers, fam- writers that were way more famous than not, I was not that I was ever famous, but like if there is such a thing as a famous writer, they wanted to bring in famous playwrights. And I didn't know why, but I was cool with it. It was just like, okay, cool. We'll bring in some more famous writers and we'll raise the ticket prices and then there'll be more money for my shows. Uh, and what I realized later is that uh, I, they were bringing in famous writers so that they can get work on the outside. And I started to see uh, these badass artists that I'd assembled. And there were just like 20 of them at that point, the whole core of the company. They really turned from having F you to everyone personalities, which is what made it so good. It was like an us against the world thing into sycophants overnight. And I couldn't believe it. I'd be watching it. They wouldn't even, there was a time I was, it was, I had just done a show the previous month. We were doing a new show and uh, I showed up to the bar to greet everyone afterwards. And people were acting like my own, my own best friends were acting like they didn't even know me because they were trying to get a good spot with all the celebrities that were starting to hang around uh, the plays, the people like Michael Shannon and um, uh, Ruffalo, Crudup. I mean, immediately there started to become all these, after the New York Times and then Adam Rapp and all that shit started to happen. And there's just celebrities and it was cool, you know, like it added to the scene. And, you know, those guys are all terrific actors. But just to see how sycophantic uh, my crew became was really disgusting to me. So then I started to think in my mind around that time, well, screw it. I'm going to write 26, 27, 30-person shows. I'm going to write epic shows that are going to be just challenges to me. I'm not going to cater to my main crew anymore and just have to try and find roles, try and write roles for them. Uh, that they'll be excited by. Hell, I don't even care if I cast them in these shows. And then it got worse. <laughs> and then, so it became these little uh, passive-aggressive and aggressive-aggressive uh, retaliations uh, against each other, which so, uh, culminated in me being yeah, so was Was Pied Piper's The Lower East Side sort of the turning point? Because that, to me, I remember that was the play that put you guys on the map. In, in a big way, in terms of the most press, in terms of getting sold out and being extended constantly. I mean, was that when you started to really feel like, um, you know, I, I remember you had said that Hollywood started, came knocking and was really interested in you guys as actors, as writers. I mean, was that kind of yeah. the turning point for you? Yeah, I mean, that was it. I mean, the, the first turning point was we uh, at PS122, I think it holds... Uh, or held at the time, 99 seats. And for the first two and a half weeks of a four-week run, uh, we'd be filling up 30, 35 seats. And we pretty much, someone knew everyone there. Someone knew everyone there. And by the last week in June of 09, uh, we kept, I'd always go and check in with the box office when I walked in just to see if we were going to go broke and never be able to do another play again. Be like, how are we doing tonight? And they'd be like, 99% capacity. Be like, oh, wow. Can I see the list of like who bought it? I didn't recognize any name on there. Then it happened another night. Then another night. Then there was a waiting list. Then there was a waiting list with a line. Then there was no waiting list with a line around the block. Then we go, okay, 
let's extend. I mean, these are the greatest moments of my life as an artist. Like that first, it'll never feel that good again. No, that's another thing that sucks when things go bad is that they never feel as good as that first time. Well, why did that play resonate? Why do you think it resonated most with audiences? Um, (laughs) I know why they came to see it. Right. Uh, I don't think Robin, Robin doesn't know this part. I think maybe you could tell her (laughs) what, there's a, <laughs> all right. Uh, so Robin, there's a, uh, about 30 minutes into the first act. Uh, there's a, it's kind of a fish out of water play in a classical sense where you have this weird tribe of polyamorous hippies and uh, they're living off the grid and they don't work and they're all kind of weird and shit uh, to your average Joe. Not me to me. I met those people in Venice beach. You know, they were real people there. Uh, but then a character, a young frat boy, one of the guy's brothers comes in and he is just a complete asshole. And three of them are in the three of the characters are in the shower. Two girls and one guy are in the shower together and they're all uh, bathing each other, possibly having sex. And they're overhearing this young frat boy be a complete douchebag and just beating down the soul of his older brother who's part of this hippie tribe. Anyway, they walk out completely naked and terrorize him in a very funny way. Uh, except one guy's got a boner. And uh, yeah, everyone came to see uh, a boner in uh, real life. And uh, Matt, to his, own, uh, to his own credit, came up with both the idea of having him walk out with a boner and being able to recreate it. Every single night, timed perfectly, <laughs> and the thing's bouncing around in this frat boy's face, and it's uh, they're acting like nothing's happening. So it's this big scene of nudity that I guess hadn't been done in that style before, and everyone, uh, not everyone, everyone that watched theater downtown came and saw it. Uh, and, uh, what fun. You know, they stayed for all the other shit. So. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like... You know, groundbreaking and like hair was, and what was the other one way back in like my parents' days? Uh, it was the first nude play like, on Broadway. Do you remember? Oh, uh, uh, but you've been compared to Sam Shepard, and and was when did that start sort of spinning around, and and why do you think that was? I don't think it has anything to do with similarities in the work. I think it has to do with it being downtown, having it be a scene as, as he had for himself and, uh, kind of just like, we weren't, see, that's, Shepard knew his theater and I, I'm a theater geek. I love theater. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he, he hate, see, that was all, it was also brandished the wrong way because they, Matt and James, they, they really went out of their way to say, try and like sell us is these tough, brash, sports loving assholes, which I mean, part of that was true, I guess. Uh, but there was really a, there was also an interest in the theater, but nobody else was interested. None of the reviewers, anybody that ever met with us had any interest in the fact that we actually cared about the medium. We cared about, you know, what we're putting on that stage. It was, I don't know. I don't, I couldn't tell you. I think that's the comparison to Shepard is that there's just like this 
kind of tough guy swagger and just kind of an outlaw went along. I mean, outlaw, yeah, sure. Consider yourself like an outlaw renegade as a artist playwright. I, I don't. I, I, I I, I, I guess I'm just not afraid to. Now I am afraid. Okay, where is he going to say? I'm not afraid to piss people off, but I am afraid to piss people off. But because I'm afraid to piss people off, I do it. You know, because I like to do things that I'm afraid of. So it's like, I, I don't know. I've been, been a troublemaker since I was a kid. You know, and I'm a troublemaker now. You know, just a matter of picking my spots. You know, outlaw. Somebody else can call me an outlaw. Put it <laughs> like that. I get uncomfortable yeah. calling myself an outlaw because it's a bit too celebratory for me. Uh, but if somebody else wanted to call me an outlaw, uh, sure, yeah. I certainly shoot from the hip <laughs> way, way more often than I should. <laughs> Derek, do you feel that, yeah. that that scene took away? Or, I mean, was it the kind of thing where, where people went in just for that, but then they were pleasantly surprised? Or did you, did you feel like you had to justify that scene in any way to people? Um, uh, the scene felt right i mean it just kind of happened like it was one of those easy moments in writing where you're talking about the nudity scene right yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh it's one of those easy moments in writing where you get to a point and just like something needs to happen it's like oh they're in the bathroom they're gonna come out naked and terrorize this kid like it just nothing's ever come as easy as that and uh like i said matt upped it by wanting it to be a boner uh but yeah i think that scene <laughs> yeah, what was the question again with that scene? Well, no, I just, you know, it, it seemed like all the press was about that when the play itself is like this three-hour epic play and there's so much being said and there was so much you were trying to say and so much of the press focused on that and I felt like that, to me... I know, know was, I know, and we, we didn't make it any better every time we brought it back. We brought it back like four times and like... The marketing team was just like, so we do a play that would lose money and then we'd bring back the Pied Pipers because we could do it for one week, charge 50 bucks, and we'd make... If, if the play right before it lost 10 grand, we'd do Pied Pipers for a week and it'd make 10 grand. And we're always like, why do you keep bringing it back? And we'd say we're bringing it back because it's theater and maybe you hadn't seen it yet. And that was good, you know, because a lot of people got to see it again uh, and we knew it and it was easy to do. I mean... We didn't even need to rehearse after a year of not doing it sometimes. And uh, I, I, we didn't help by marketing it in ways like the Pied Pipers has been res erected, you know, and just little things like that to try and. I always hated that they did that shit, but I knew we were doing it for the money. So I went along with it. So, like, there's a lot of regrets like that. But then I, internalize that anger towards that and I'd take it out in the next play. So then my plays essentially went from something like Pied Pipers, which is genuinely an optimistic play about the world. And uh, it's something that a 26-year-old wrote who fell in love for the first time, you know, during that process of writing it. And, uh, you know, it came from a general optimistic point of view in which the drama was when... uh, any part of cynicism that was inside of me started to descend upon the play and it had a nice balance. Whereas with each play after that, they were, they started to become more and more cynical. They were written with more of a societal malaise and I would try and interject optimism 
into it. So it became the reverse. Uh, um, so that by the end, by the time I did the qualification at Douglas Evans, which was my last play over there, it was like the darkest thing you could possibly write. And you're just trying to add in humor, trying to find the funny anywhere. It's probably the best thing I ever wrote, but it, that's just because I got better by writing more. It's called The Qualification of Douglas Evans. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a meta theater play, essentially, about alcoholism, family destruction, abusive relationships, everything terrible. <laughs> you also starred in, right? Yeah, he acted in it. So, like, if you wanted to speak about things that were, like... Uh, subconscious at the time i guess i knew my my world was kind of crumbling around me when i was doing that in the summer of 14 looking back on it now it was just like everything that i did at that point was as as though it was my last my last thing ever i wrote a play in which i'm essentially playing a, a version of myself and I'm acting, and I don't act that often. So I'm playing a version of myself who's playing a version of himself in the play. And at that time, my relationship's ending with my girlfriend. I'm living in her uh, home so she can kick me out at any time. Everything, we're breaking up. Uh, everything is going to hell. And that play somehow came out of it. And sure enough, a month after that, uh, I was kicked out of the company. My girlfriend kicked me out of her house. Uh, what else? Oh yeah. All my friends stopped speaking to me. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty bleak. Wow. It was a bleak, it was a bleak, uh, the good thing is, though, is that when things like that happen, uh, I tend not to learn my lesson. I tend to get motivated by revenge. And uh, it'll, it gave me about five years worth of just free energy uh, to try and just create, just to create more things and produce more things and do it and prove to them that I don't need them to create it, that I don't need them for my place to be good, that I don't need anybody. Like, whatever i'm not going to be the judge of whether they are or they aren't or whether that's even a good place to be operating from but it gave me the energy uh because i was just like uh there's there's no way in hell all these horrible things you have to you you feel about me uh i'm not going to listen to any of them i'll figure them out on my own time but right now i'm going to stick it to you (laughs) so the revenge period what happened what came out of that revenge period so when they left to speak with the revenge, when that ended, when I, my relationship with them ended, uh, I went down to South Carolina. I asked if I can go live there. And I lived in a, a old uh, African-American church. I think it was kind of haunted. And I was there for two months writing my first play post uh, Liam Moralist. And so I did that. Which then, play was that? It's called The Transcendence. It was made into a movie later on. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, people actually don't know that I was a play because uh, it was just done in South Carolina for a month. And uh, so anyway, uh, after that, immediately, I'm in L.A. doing Pied Pipers with a brand new cast. Uh, Alex and a couple of other people obviously produced it. And uh, I mean, that's the altar. They've been wanting to do LA, uh, Pied Pipers in Los Angeles uh, for years. And I, I just didn't want to do the play anymore i'd been done with it i'd been done with that play this is now 2015 i wrote that play in the summer of 2006 
you know, we, we did it the first time that nobody knows about. We did it at, in a tiny little theater in 2007. The 2009 production is the one that everyone's sort of paying attention to. But I was done with that. I'd written six other plays by then and it just didn't have, never had any interest in doing it with them. Until Alex approached me about doing it in Los Angeles. I was getting kicked out of my old company and it was a perfect vehicle to do the thing they always wanted me to do, but not with them. (laughs) (laughs) So I did it. The other thing they wanted me to do, which I never wanted to do was write a movie for them. Didn't want to do it because I had, I like the idea of writing a play in January and having it in front of eyes in June, like that process. So I never bothered writing a movie. Well, I come back from Los Angeles in 2000, summer 2015. I go, okay, I'm going to turn the transcendence into a movie. We had that movie being filmed in, uh, we went into pre-production in the fall of 15. And it was being filmed in June of 16. And post-production was in the fall of 16. What's the other thing they wanted me to do? They wanted me to write a one-person show for one of them. Really give them all the attention. Write a one-person show. Never wanted to do it. Didn't interest me. Well, it's 2017, an actress in London comes to me and says, will you write a one-person show for me? And I say, absolutely. (laughs) Then I'm in London for six months, uh, doing the play up in Scotland, and and then in London, it got got extended to London after the Edinburgh Festival. And uh, then 2018 comes around, and this is where now revenge starts to subside. And I start to really fall into the place uh, where I am now, which is where I'm really just essentially doing. Uh, I'm either I'm either fixing other people's shit up for money, uh, which is fun, uh, or I'm just doing stuff that genuinely interests me with no revenge factor, no uh, reason to stick it to anybody. I guess I'm in a better place, although I certainly could use the energy, uh, the revenge energy. It's a good energy. <laughs> so you said earlier that you didn't want to do more plays unless you maybe did a new version of Pied Piper later, many years later. Um, like, why did you say that? Why don't you want to do further plays? Is it because uh, of theater? Is it because of this weird pandemic that we're in? I mean, because we don't know when this is going to end. Just curious. No, it... it, it it hasn't happened. It, it, that sense of it happened years ago, way before the pandemic. And it's really as simple as this. It's not because of the money and it's not because of the medium. It's just, it's, I just had to explain to you the nudity of Pied Pipers because you didn't see it. And it's not your fault that you didn't see it because most everyone didn't see it. And everyone in New York who knew about downtown theater saw it. So it felt really big. And then you get away from it and just like, oh shit, nobody saw this and there's no way to show it to anybody. There's no way to show it. No one's going to see it. And no one wants to hear me talk about a goddamn play from 15 years ago. Maybe some people do. Hopefully whoever's listening to this does. But, you know, I want to... Film is more attractive to me because it exists forever. Yeah, and even though movie theaters might not, sadly. I know. Yeah, Yeah, that is sad. Well, maybe the small art house theaters might stick around. So. Something that the kids can bring back. Yeah. When you, I like the, the drive-in thing that's been happening. Oh, that's yeah. all. Yeah, that's. I, I think what's happened with drive-ins is what's going to happen to movie theaters in a couple of years. It's going to be a novelty. Just... Go back to the fifties or something. Exactly. But you know, maybe the old grind houses will all open again. <laughs> yeah. 
Was it hard for you to direct a uh, film? I mean, going from the f- so many years in the theater, was that, was that a strange transition? Yeah. And this is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons for that, but the biggest one is, is that in theater, the actors loved it when I would work with them. And my favorite part of directing theater is working with the actors. Okay. So all my focus is on once a script is written is working with the actors and being like, do you want to cut this? What do you want to be shaping the play with the actors in the theater? And then working in film, I, I took that same approach and I learned on the fly, you know, that actually one, they're not the thing I need to be worried about the most. There's so many other people that are tugging at my arm and so many different departments that need me. And uh, luckily I had a lot of good ideas. Like I'm excited to work with those people just as much as the actors. Uh, But my priority was always to just get back to the actors. Let's work on this performance. Let's work on this moment. Let's do this. Let's rehearse. And that just, that just wasn't happening the way I wanted it to happen. And it couldn't have, there just wasn't enough time. And uh, I used, uh, film actors that weren't used to uh, the way I worked uh, as a theater director. Uh, so that was, that was difficult because I needed to learn how, just how the, how the interpersonal dynamics and professional uh, priorities of, a, of a, somebody directing a film operated uh, versus the theater, which is just me, a lighting designer, a costume designer, and then actors for the most of the time. So, so if you could uh, do anything right now, what would that be? The next thing I'm going to do, which is this next film, I've got to, it's, it's the final part of this trilogy uh, that uh, is now six years in the making. The first one's already done. Alec, you saw it. And yeah. the second one is, is done. It's uh, filmed in, uh, uh, in the UK, and uh, that should be coming out next year and the third one i just finished writing and uh it's called the trauma trilogy when taken together although i'm sure everybody that was involved on each individual film uh would like to feel that uh it's uh (laughs) they're not part of a bigger whole that belongs to me uh which is why i haven't told them until just now (laughs) yeah tell us each each part yeah okay so I i wrote this this is thing I've called it the trauma trilogy, and it's three horror stories or horrific tales or something. It's called three horrific tales of revenge, reduction, and reintegration. Okay, and the first one is called the transcendence. That would be the revenge story, uh, and these are all uh, facets of trauma, revenge, reduction, and reintegration. That's a rock and roll detective story about a man who goes looking for a band that's gone missing. And it turns out he wrote all the songs for this band and uh, then was kicked out. uh, And they went on to be famous without paying him anything. Sound familiar? The first thing I wrote when I got kicked out of my group. Uh, (laughs) The next thing is that the second part is called Zebra Girl. And I'll just say that that is... uh, the reduction part. It's a, it's a very female story. It's an all female cast except for uh, Tom Cullen, a really terrific actor. Uh, and that takes place in, uh, in uh, the UK. I can't really say much about that because of contractual reasons. And the third one is uh, it's called the range of tolerance. It's about a taxidermist who's uh, been stuck at home with his mother. And after his father's death, 
and uh, he's been writing love letters to a woman who's in prison, and uh, they're uh, pen pals essentially, and uh, it pretty much picks up on the day of a release, and uh, a love story uh, ensues, and then all of her horrific and terrifying past combined with his childhood trauma collide in the present tense and it becomes a really fun horror slash psycho slash something wild slash Brian De Palma's sisters. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. It's uh, there, there, there you go. There's my, my, wow. my pitch. It's if you take Jonathan Demi's something wild and you mix it with psycho and you mix it with <laughs> Brian De Palma's sisters. But it's not really like sisters. It's more about like just how cool Margot Kidder is in sisters. How do you think that's going to look? Where do we get to see these movies? Uh, the Transcendence is out. So that's, uh, you can find it on any uh, video platform for the most part. There's still that, that spot where they're charging for it. Uh, yeah. but I can send you, I can send you guys, you or I don't know. I got to check my contract. I don't know if I could send people cuts. Uh, yeah. Don't send freebies. We, we just want to see where we can see it. And also the other two to come. Yeah. The other one is, I can't speak about it. Like I said, it's coming about next year that I know I can't speak about until, uh, it's called Zebra Girl. And all I can really speak about is stuff that's been made public about it. So like on IMDb, you could find out, you see the cast, you could find out uh, the paragraph synopsis, not even synopsis, just kind of like, you know, whatever that, what are those? Those aren't synopsises on IMDb, right? Those are just more like a paragraph. They're enticers. We'll call them enticers. Enticers. Um, I can't say anything more about that release. And then the other one, uh, it's done. And uh, I've said the earliest stages of uh, pre-production right after the new year. Uh, And there's, uh, it's only has uh, one person cast. It's got four awesome parts, probably my four favorite characters that I've ever written, but you can't trust yourself. That's another thing. Cause every writer I know when they're writing their own shit, uh, whatever they're working on, they always think is the best thing they've ever done. So maybe it's the work, maybe it's a piece of shit. I don't know. I just think it's the best thing I ever did because I've been working on it for a year. Any of uh, the same actors uh, from Transcendence in the other two? Uh, there will be maybe a little bit of overlap. Uh, okay. Maybe. I don't know. There's, it's, uh, <clears throat> like I say, it's in the early stages and it needs more financiers. And you know, uh, when that happens, uh, Let's just say that there's nobody that I've felt comfortable making a promise to, let alone signing a contract yet. Right, right. Any intention of, you know, what you did with The Immortalist, where you had the same group of people working together over and over, sort of like what Ryan Murphy does. Would you have any intention of doing that with your filmmaking? I'd love to. That's the best thing. I mean... It's just the same crew over and over, and everybody's friends. Everybody spends Thanksgiving together, whatever the hell people do. You know, we used to go to bars together, but I mean, what do you know? What do grownups do? They go tea together. Oh, fuck, yeah. I don't know. Hell, if I know, whatever people do together. So we <laughs> just basically, so it's a family. You know, family units that, that when you're using them all, it's. I mean, that's what's more exciting to me than just using the same actors to use the same actors. I mean, I guess there's a certain amount. It's good to have continuity. Speaking of Jonathan Demi, I mean, he had some of the best continuity. I mean, I always think about like, 
clans, you know, like film groups. Like we were having a conversation with someone about this recently. Like, who's your favorite film group of all time? Is it like the Altman crew, the Robert Altman crew? Uh, you know, like Pete P.T. Anderson has his own crew of like people that are like uh, Mike Lee. Mike Lee certainly does. Uh, Demi, I like P.T. Anderson. Crews. That's my vote. P.T. Anderson, he's got a good crew. I, like uh, I love watching, every once in a while, like there's movies from like the 70s and 80s, you'll see people that have big parts in the P.T. Anderson movies. They have like small parts in like some random movie in the 70s. And it's always kind of cool because it's like, you know he zeroed in on that random movie in the 70s and said, that person is awesome. I'm going to give him a bigger part or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Um, so what fun this is. Just so, so like what does this weird 2020 year affect you in any way? I mean, how do you see things maybe differently right now based on everything we've just kind of experienced? Well, either it's either going to be the Wild West and there's going to be great opportunity, or say goodbye to everything cool and Disney's going to run it. I don't see the hybrid right now to answer your question. I, I, the hybrid you, is the ideal situation, but what you I don't see it. I don't know. What, what, what would be your ideal future in terms of filmmakers like yourself? Okay. Well, the ideal situation is that uh, the big movie theaters that rely on uh, these epic blockbuster movies uh, – to change, although they're never going to go out. They're never going to go out because obviously you saw what just happened with like HBO Max, like AT&T owns the damn thing. They're, they're probably going to buy their own damn movie theaters themselves. Uh, but the ideal situation is everything big disappears. Somehow we re-enter an age of like the 70s. It's smaller movie theaters. You know, like what's what are the theaters in the, uh, LA? I really love... Uh, what's that chain? The Lemley? The... Oh, yeah. yeah, Lemleys. Yeah, Lemleys. Yeah, the Lemleys. Yeah, the Lemleys. and they're they're a family. You like family? They are. Yeah, that's. I mean, like those theaters doing. Uh, you know, not. It doesn't have to all be Alamo draft houses. It could just be you know, just like family run smaller. They got six or seven theaters, and you know, basically the idea is that <laughs> uh, they stop making these big crappy things that I hate. And uh, that I, I would only watch on a 110 degree summer day when they were doing construction in my building and I needed to go in <laughs> to get air conditioning. Some shit like that. Those things end. And we just have more. See, that's what's also interesting to speak to you. Like, there used to be a shitload more diversity. Also, diversity of ideas diversity of storytelling diversity of stories it is we do need a hell of a lot more diversity when it comes time to gender orientation race we also need diversity in storytelling when it comes time to class when it comes time to age i want to see uh old i want to see stories about old people i want more stories with julie christie and bruce Dern. Did Bruce Dern die? Oh, no, that was Peter Fonda. Well, even if he did die, somebody playing Bruce Dern. Uh, 
Well, all the, there's just more diversity in storytelling across the whole board is is a good thing. And yeah. I don't think, uh, I don't like the idea of a whole generation growing up thinking that, uh, you know, the epic comic book movie is what movie theaters are for. So hopefully if they go straight to the, uh, uh, the streaming services, uh, and who knows if, if, you know, once the cat's out of the bag, like 2021, when, when everything's going to HBO Max, like who knows once the cat's out of the bag on that, if it ever can be put back in, you know, and then hopefully the littler theaters will survive and they'll do cool shit. So come to agreements. And then you got to worry about how many production companies 2020 is going to wipe out, you know, smaller production companies are just kind of hanging on by threads. You know, it's the whole, Ah, that's just the upward transfer of absolute power and wealth that 2020 has brought about is nightmare scenario in every aspect of society when I think about it. So I just hope there's enough warriors and outlaws, as you want to put it, and badass people that aren't looking to climb a ladder, that don't give a shit, that really aren't too excited to be living in the first place, that are just out there doing cool shit. Let's hope. So we'd like to do this kind of lightning round at the very end. We want to ask you a few quick one answer questions. Cool. You have two seconds there. No, I'm just kidding. But okay. So who are you listening to right now? Music wise. The Brian Jones, Tom Massacre. Who do you consider an underrated artist? Vim Vendors. Greatest play ever written. Private Lives. Huh. By Noel Coward. What are you reading? America, The Farewell Tour by Chris Hedges. What is your favorite word? memories thank you for your time here this is really this is great yeah thanks guys thanks for having me good talking to you thanks for listening to art laws i'm alex zappa and i'm robin rosenfeld follow us on instagram at art laws pod and subscribe to us on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts leave a comment and give us a rating we'll be back soon with more bye Bye. art laws is produced by alex zappa and robin rosenfeld Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. 